What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast, a podcast to promote and improve your practice as an athletic trainer. I'm your host, Jeremy Jackson. I'm joined by Dr. Zachary Winkleman. Uh, he's at South Carolina. He is a clinical coordinator for the athletic training services there. Um, he's also a Houston product, so he's from the Cypress area. And um, Zach, I didn't ask you, but did you attend GHATS when you were in high school? Yeah, I went from uh, 2007 um, while I was at uh, undergrad at Texas Lutheran, too. So I went all through the four years there. So I went to GHATS for about eight years. Very nice. So actually on my wall over here, I have a, you can't see it, but it's a picture. It's a t-shirt from G hats of 1999. That was my graduating year. And that was, I think at Tomball high school. So way back in the day, I, I also was a student athletic trainer for four years. And so, you know, I went to G hats and now being here in Houston. And so G hats is the student athletic trainer or student athletic trainer aid workshop that we host here in Houston. It's one of the largest in the nation. So pretty cool. So also joined on the call will be Ray Olivo, and then sitting right next to me is my wonderful assistant uh, co-worker, Sophia Mata, and we're talking about patient-centered approach to athletic training services. So Zach is going to be teaching us all about a patient-centered approach, and then at the end, we're going to have questions. So join along in the slideshow. It's, it'll be easier there, and then if you're checking this out later, um, again, click on the sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash patient-centered approach patient-centered approach, and then that'll have the slideshow and the, the videos, so it'll be easier to follow along. So without much further ado, Dr. Zachary Winkleman, why don't you take it away? All right, so good morning, and thanks for uh, having me on the Sports Medicine Broadcast. I really do appreciate it. Um, before I get started, just want to uh, give a shout out to two people that really helped me frame my, my mindset around this. So uh, Mark Larson, who's at Boston University, and Dr. Lindsay Everman from Indiana State University. Um, they've been huge mentors to me in terms of how to reframe my thinking towards uh, the services we provide as athletic trainers. Um, so just wanted to, to give them a little shout out before I get started with this. Um, so the objectives for today are to kind of review the history of patient-centered care, explore some of the background literature, and then really provide some examples of what this looks like for uh, us in terms of our clinical practice. Um, so the Picker Institute, uh, which has now dissolved and become uh, absorbed into the uh, some of the IHI, the Government Institutions for Health, um, created this idea of patient-centered care back in the, the early 80s. And Picker, uh, he really tried to frame this mindset around eight core principles that uh, to provide true patient-centered care, we have to consider uh, the patient's preferences their support systems, how we consider their physical comfort, comfort. Um, are we providing patient education, their access to their care that they're receiving. Um, and so these core principles were uh, defined by a healthcare provider of what they thought patients should be receiving. And I think that's a, a key um, note for the rest of the presentation, that we have to be mindful that the patient-centered care principles were derived by providers. And so the, the idea here is that these are the things that we think we need to be providing to patients to make them feel patient-centered. Um, as an educator, just wanted to touch on this, especially too for um, athletic trainers out there practicing right now, that the standards have changed now for professional education with the degree transition to the master's level. Um, and as part of that, they've integrated the core competencies, which are the, the the areas that all healthcare providers should uh, be tied together. 
Those things include like evidence-based practice, healthcare informatics, and one of them is patient-centered care. So all the students that are now going through professional master's programs um, as of 2020 will have to uh, adhere to these five standards relative to patient-centered care. So if you're a preceptor or you have uh, new colleagues coming into your workforce, uh, these are things that they have learned and practiced. And I think it's important as uh, currently practicing clinicians that we are mindful of the new standards, if you will, um, and these things, and I'll touch on these throughout the presentation too. But in reality, these aren't new standards. Um, they've actually been part of post-professional education and um, were in 2014. And then before that, they were listed as part of the NATA uh, kind of idea of the background of what uh, a healthcare provider should be. Um, the concept of this was also adopted by the Interassociation Consensus Statement on Best Practices that came out in 2014, and this was for secondary schools and colleges. And the framework for this, they called it uh, athlete-centered care. And I want us to reframe the thinking that I see it all the time on social media that, um, you know, my athlete or uh, we describe the people we work with that way. When in reality, they are more than an athlete and they're not your athlete. They are a person, they're a patient, they're someone that you're providing care for. And so taking possession of them and their possession of them as my athlete and then calling them an athlete refers to only one aspect of their life and we'd be missing a bigger picture there. And so if we really wanna provide patient-centered care, we gotta first start by saying my, stop saying my athlete and calling them athletes to begin with. Um, so as I said, the NHCA kind of discussed this years ago um, and discussed this from three main aspects of the NATA's idea of, of patient-centered care before it was coined patient-centered care by our profession. So primacy of the patient, cultural competence, and professionalism. And if we think about those things, um, we typically may not have had exposure to what those are. People assume that you're culturally competent, um, you're aware of things that may be going on, uh, professionalism is a hard thing to teach, and I think it's a hard thing for things people to practice sometimes. And so we assume that people are empathetic and compassionate if they're a healthcare provider. We just assume that those two, two things go to in hand in hand. Um, but the, the purpose of my presentation is to really figure out what this looks like. And so these are some friends of mine that I have on, on the Twitter and uh, some tweets that I pulled. They don't know that they're in here, um, but Twitter is a public space. So... Um, this is just some examples of, I think, people doing patient-centered care without realizing they're doing patient-centered care. So the idea that it takes no more time or skill to be kind and be empathetic. Um, listening to someone's story and taking, uh, taking a little bit more time to just listen to someone and understanding how their mental health uh, may be impacting some of the things that are going, going on for that individual. This was a more recent one from, I think, two days ago um, that I had saw about someone that was having pain and they couldn't figure out why the pain was, uh, was there for that individual. And then they took a step back and realized that person was uh, going into child pose for prayer five times a day. And it's connecting these aspects of someone's life back to the physical limitations or their signs and symptoms that they're presenting with um, to really uh, complement the skills that we have as an athletic trainer. Uh, into providing holistic whole patient um, healthcare. Now, ATC Anonymous I, is a hit or miss, I think, with people if they, they like it or they don't. Um, but this was a post that came out in August of last year, right before school started. And it was talking about people distinguishing the idea if they're hurt or if they are really injured or if it's just pain. 
and faking an injury. And it got a lot of traction on social media relative to this post. And I think these, I pulled these two because I think they specifically hit home to what I, um, my morals and values as a healthcare provider, that it's allowing them to fake the injury. It's being empathetic and listening to them. And our job, as Dr. Games here wrote, our job is not to get them back to sport. Our job is to provide them the best care with options that may be available. And this other individual, they, they spoke about this, that, you know, the person faking it may have a deeper story that they are trying to find an outlet to speak to someone and that it's not always about the actual injury that they're coming for, but they're trusting you as a, a, a support system that they need you to listen and re recognize that sport may be an outlet in their life, but they also may need you to be that listening ear about the other aspects of their life in a trusted manner. And so, um, I think the end of this tweet, never discount a visit, is such a, a, a big part of our job as athletic trainers that we have direct access to our patients, we have daily interactions with them, and we are unique in that, in that realm that we don't have to wait three or four days to see someone or hope that they're doing their home exercise program, that we have this direct access to patients. And in doing so, we have another, um, I don't want to say burden, but we have another responsibility to do. Uh, and that's listening and being empathetic. So uh, patient-centered care uh, is defined as providing care that's respectful, responsive, and uh, to an individual's preferences, needs, and values, and that should guide all of the clinical decisions. And I think the word all, um, I probably should have put in another, another color there, um, because that's what the bigger picture is, that in healthcare, it's not about what we want to do, it's about matching what we think is the best options or what our, our knowledge and our evidence has told us about our clinical practice and connecting that back to the patient's values. And so if you look at the, the trifecta or the triangle of evidence-based medicine or evidence-based practice, we have this idea of best available evidence, we have this idea of our clinical expertise of what we found as healthcare providers, we also have to understand that the third part of actually doing evidence-based medicine is the patient's values or the patient's preferences. Um, and if we don't incorporate that or consider that, we're actually never being evidence-based practitioners. And so I think it's important that we understand that this is a whole sector of evidence-based medicine itself. Um, so I'm going to take you through the standards and um, just because I think it's a, a nice way to frame the presentation, but it's also a great way so I can incorporate the picker's tenants into the standards as well for you. So standard 56 um, from the new Katie standard says that we have to advocate for the health and needs of patients uh, and their community and their population and looking at the larger public health atmosphere. So we look at that in terms of access to care, the picker's principle. Um, this is about thinking of where location of hospitals, clinics, and physicians offices are relative to uh, the location that you're practicing. Um, the availability of transportation, does that individual that's coming to see you have to walk um, a couple miles to get there? Are there sidewalks present for them to walk on? Are they having to be exposed to gravel and terrain that may predispose them to more injury? Um, What's the uh, appointment process or the scheduling? Even if you don't use appointments in your clinical practice, what does it look like for the patient to be able to come to see you? I know in the secondary school setting, this is a, a struggle, especially depending on the, the framework of how the, the school and the, the clinic or the hospital, or however you're providing care, uh, work together. And so if we look at the vast majority of secondary schools, 
the bell rings at 2.30 and it's mass chaos for 30, 40 minutes and then practices start. And you may have anywhere from 20 to 300 student athletes that just walk through the door. And so how do we try to be patient centered when we have an influx of patients that is unlike any other profession and we have low staffing issues. And so this is where the idea that does a patient feel that they are getting the best care that they need because of the system that we have. So if you think about your own experience as a person seeking healthcare, one of the common things for myself at least going to see a family physician is you know you're going to wait 45 minutes easily. Like going to a doctor, being from Houston, going to the doctor, you go and you sit and wait. And so you bring something to do, you have planned and prepared yourself to sit there and wait to be called because you know that they're never on time. But what about an athletic training? Do we think that people don't come to see us or patients aren't checking in for rehab or when we complain that the patient's like, oh, I never see them, they never come in. Is it because that they don't want to or is it because that the ease of the scheduling appointments or being able to be seen by us in an individual manner is really just not there sometimes? Um, so I think it's helpful to take a step back and reframe our mind around those things. Um, and this access to care is what really sparked my interest relative to telemedicine. So um, I do research and I'm a telehealth facilitator. Um, so through that, the at Indiana State, when I was practicing clinically there, um, our team positions were located about 90 miles from our campus. And so that meant anytime one of our, uh, one of the patients needed to be seen for by an orthopedic uh, specialist, we had to drive 90 miles there and 90 miles back. That was about a three hour commute um, to go see our team physicians. And while that didn't seem like an issue to the student athlete because we drove them, it became an issue relative to the access to me providing care to the rest of the, the patients that I needed to. It was a difficulty relative to transportation that, that increased uh, travel time, gas costs, other things like that for the university. And so we had to look at, we don't have the access to the providers that we needed in the local community. So how do we look at, how do we provide care differently to match the needs of our patients? And that's where kind of my mindset and practice relative to telemedicine kind of uh, came to be. <clears throat> so standard 57 is um, about identifying healthcare strategies that account for health literacy and the social determinants of health. Um, if these two terms are, are new to you or unfamiliar to you, I'm gonna go through and kind of explain what they are. So the social determinants of health, there are five main uh, grouping variables. Um, then those are broken down into anywhere between 12 to 19 uh, sub-activities, depending on the literature that you read. Uh, the graphic on the, the screen here is up some of the 12, uh, but the social determinants of health try to help explain a person's um, time from that they were uh, a fetus to the time that they are seeing you, what has that person experienced in their life that may be determining the health outcomes for that individual. So for example, um, being breastfed by, uh, by when you're a child has implications to um, long-term health uh, consequences or growing up in an urban area without parks uh, or being exposed to pet dander and um, pollution in a, in a large city, those things all create long-term health consequences relative to respiratory illness and asthma. So how do we see someone when they walk in and take a step back to say, what are the other things in your life that are going on that may be impacting or impeding your, your ability to heal? And for us as athletic trainers, some of these things are difficult for us to, to screen for or to assess. But if we start to think about um, 
the the physical environment, the social environment, and the access to health services for these individuals, we really see the social determinants of health are the link between those that may get better and then those that um, are our chronic copers or the chronic patients that we may see. So uh, the, the picture on the right is one of my favorites. And this is the idea that we have to stop treating everyone the same. So the picture on the left is about equality. And I think we all strive to, to promote equality in um, our patients and our daily interactions in the world. Um, and in doing so, that means providing the same level or same access to something to everyone. And that's what equality is all about. So in the picture on the left is uh, a group, or on the right, is a group of people watching a baseball game. If we all provided them the same box, some people would still be able to see the game, but some people may not. Equity or providing equitable care looks at someone's resources or their social determinants of health and provides resources adequate to their needs. So if you have someone that has high health literacy, grows up in a, uh, a strong social support system with a uh, no negative previous experiences to trauma uh, or uh, has great coping skills, those individuals may not need additional resources. But individuals that have struggled with a social environment, say bullying or uh, parents not being able to pay rent and so it creates stress at home, they may be provided a box. But then you have to look at the biology and genetics, health behaviors, things like that, that say, I may need to provide additional resources to one person or specifically to this person to give them the same level playing field as the other person that grew up in a um, more privileged uh, or uh, less issue social determinants of health wise uh, for that individual. <clears throat> so with doing so, one of the social determinants of health is the social support system. Um, and the picker tenant related back to this is the involvement of family and friends. Um, in athletic training, we, uh, especially in the college and university setting, we often dictate our care uh, relative to a coach, a game, a sport team. Um, but in reality, some of those individuals aren't necessarily the social support system of that individual. And so what this tenant is really hoping to drive um, back into practice is that we need to ask people who is their social support system. That doesn't mean that uh, we ask someone who, um, do you want me to talk to your mom or dad? And I think it's important that we, I give that example because that places your own bias on that you think that they both have a mom and dad at home, that you have now placed them in a heterosexual family and that you have now said that that is their social support system. And so by asking a question back to the patient, like, hey, do you want me to talk to your mom and dad about this? We've now placed our own bias about what you think is the correct involvement of family and friends for that individual. So my suggestion to you is, do you have someone that you would like me to share this information with? Do you have someone you want me to incorporate? If they say, yeah, I want you to talk to my parents. Do you have a parent that you prefer me to talk to? Are they your legal guardian? Are they your mom, your dad? Or who do you, who do you prefer that I contact and call about this matter? And so it allows the patient to guide their decisions, listening to their preferences, and helping to meet the needs that you want to do as a, a healthcare provider. <clears throat> and then the other, the other tenet or the other concept for this standard was health literacy. Um, and this is some stuff I'm working on some research right now relative to uh, some collaborations with Indiana State University and looking at health literacy of uh, collegiate student athletes. Um, but the Institute of Medicine defined this as the degree of what individuals have the capacity to obtain, process, and understand basic health information and services. 
Um, so if we look at our role as healthcare providers, uh, we often become enablers. I'm a terrible person at this because I think I know what to do and help people. And in doing so, I may be hindering people. So when I was uh, worked for men's basketball at Indiana State, um, I had a group of about 15 uh, college basketball players. And in that, I found myself that I had a small patient load. I was a graduate assistant at that time. I got really excited about providing patient care. So I was like, I'm gonna do everything possible for these people. <laughs> and in doing so, I realized that I enabled them and I did not discuss their health literacy or making sure that they knew what to do. And then what that turned out to be is that I still get uh, Instagram messages or random texts from numbers that I don't have saved anymore from people that were patients of mine back in 2013 saying, hey, I got a medical bill. I don't know what to do, or I need to get in to get my flu vaccine. How did you do that? And so what I did was I enabled someone so much to set up the services for them that they don't actually know how to read, comprehend, and assess the healthcare system itself. Um, and so my, my kind of task to you is analyze that individual's ability to understand or comprehend what the things that you know as a healthcare provider to do, but in doing so, help to educate that person while you're doing it. So if you still wanna schedule someone's flu vaccine or you need to uh, pay a medical bill from your site for that individual, take them through that process of saying like, this is the bill, this number right here is your plan, this is your insurance number, this is how the bill works. In case you ever get one in the future, this is how to comprehend it. That extra little step is the, may seem tedious or uh, minute to some individuals, but it really helps for long-term healthcare competence and healthcare literacy relative to these issues. Um, and when we look at the bigger picture of people that are at risk, uh, there's about 90 million Americans as of 2017 that have uh, a lack of literacy skills relative to be able to function in the healthcare system. Now, I think as athletic trainers, there's still some things that we see um, that we are very unfamiliar with. And I think for the vast majority of athletic trainers, we're unfamiliar with the billing and coding system. Um, I think we're getting better and we're learning more about it. But even if we asked, if someone asked an athletic trainer to help with the billing and coding system, since we don't bill in most uh, sites that we would still struggle with how to look at some of these resources. Um, and we have to understand that the average reading level of someone in the United States is typically at about a sixth grade reading level. So when you're creating forms or documents and um, trying to create those for your healthcare practice, we need to be mindful that you need to create those at about a sixth grade reading level. To check that, I think some people hear that and they're like, okay, I don't know what to do. That sounds great. I don't remember what it's like to read a sixth grade reading level. Um, but to do that on uh, Microsoft Word, they have a feature that goes in and tells you the reading level when you do your grammar spelling check. And so it will tell you what the reading level of your document is. So if you pull up like some research that I wrote, those are usually at like the 13th or 14th reading uh, grade level. And so if we look at some of the stuff that we are reading as clinicians in terms of informing our practice, and then we think about what we need to ask in terms of questions for um, pre-participation exams, concussion education forms, all of those need to be um, revised and reframed to a lower reading level to accommodate the needs of our patients and their support system. Um, and the individuals most at risk, and I think this is helpful in terms of where you live in the community that you serve, 
are individuals that are 60 plus uh, immigrants, minority populations, non-native English speakers, uh, anybody that's medically underserved, uh, those that did not complete high school or a GED, and those below a sixth grade reading level. So if we look at that, uh, that population, this really kind of described my community that I grew up in in Cyprus. And so if you if you're familiar with the Houston area, Cyprus is a suburb and it was a uh, I, I would call it more a more affluent area, um, but they created high schools that were relative to separate communities. And at my high school, we had a, a large minority population, especially after Hurricane Katrina with the, the relocation of people from New Orleans. We had a large immigrant population of individuals from um, like Pakistan and Mexico. Um, we had a lot of non-native English speakers at my, at my high school. I would say about 40% of the school were um, Hispanic and about 20% of those were non-native English speakers. And so you have to understand that while you consider uh, an affluent suburb of Houston as uh, they probably don't have health literacy issues. It's a good school, it's a great school district, you should be fine. Yet the individuals that make up that community may have been predisposed to, to some issues and they may not fit the norm. And so doing this on an individual level is so important rather than just assessing uh, a broader scope or are thinking that uh, this community is fine, the one I'm moving into, um, because we have to explore the support system. Um, when I was at uh, Texas Lutheran, uh, that was a very um, heavily Hispanic and non-native English speaker community. And that was something I struggled with at the high school when I was doing some of the rotations there, that the uh, support system, the parents, when they would come up to talk to you about the patients, didn't speak English. And I've taken six years of Spanish, but that never stuck. And so um, I think for me, it was trying to figure out how to talk to individuals um, relative to their health literacy and making sure that they get those things connected. Um, standard 58 is about patient education. Um, so they, the picker tenant specific to this is um, relative to fear. Um, so the, the literature tells us that um, when we explore patient-centered care, patients feel that providers are often um, withholding information from individuals and that creates them to be fearful of receiving information and that they don't have the bigger picture of the full diagnosis that's going on. And I think that should hit home to people that we need to take a, a couple more seconds to sit down and talk to someone about um, their status of their health condition and their prognosis. Prognosis is the idea of, are you expected to get better? So when someone comes in and they have an ankle sprain, the prognosis for someone that has a first time ankle sprain is pretty good. Um, you're likely going to recover. But someone that's maybe on their fifth or sixth recurrent ankle sprain on the same ankle and is 17 or 18 in high school, we need to explain to them that their prognosis to get better is probably still good, um, but their prognosis for long-term complications has now risen um, dramatically. And so we have to explain to them that it's not just about um, can you get better and can you play this week, but now you have the a predisposition to osteoarthritis and having limitations of uh, picking up your kids when you're older and working with them. Um, also, the uh, information education is about a shared decision-making, which is the central component um, of all the uh, definitions of patient-centered care, that it's this idea that um, it's not our job to tell someone what to do. And I think it's really hard for athletic trainers to frame this in their mind. So 
Um, the first thing is getting consent and assent. And so just to clarify and define those, don't want to, uh, you know, just, I, I assume everyone knows what those mean, but um, consent is provided by an adult um, and says that they are informed uh, of the risk benefits and what they should be assuming to receive. Assent is provided by a minor. Um, and so if you're going to be working with uh, a high school uh, patient, the idea here is that you have to get consent from the parent to treat first, and you, you should get consent to them about what your specific interventions may be. But you also need to get assent from the child that uh, your parents said that I could do this. Do you want me to go through and move forward with your rehab? Or do you want me to move forward with your evaluation? That it's not, the parent's job is to give them consent to treat, but it's the child's job to assent to the treatment that you'll be providing. And so making sure that they're open to the interventions as well that you'll be receiving. Um, and then goal setting. This is the idea of creating SMART goals, something that uh, I think we often do at the end of an evaluation, um, but the idea of being patient-centered is creating goals for the encounter. How do we start the encounter by saying, what do you want to get out of this? What is the purpose of you coming here today? Um, what is the, the driving reason for you to present into the athletic training facility? If we create goals for the encounter, we can then check off the boxes that I have met the person's need to get a diagnosis and to get some immediate treatment. So we know what the person's coming in for. I remember I had a, a patient when I was working basketball that just, I did a full evaluation, had a rehab plan written up and the whole time and he never came back and did anything. And I got really frustrated. And the whole time he's like, I just wanted to make sure my ACL wasn't torn. And I was like, oh, he could have told me that. And the issue was that it wasn't his job to tell me that. It was my job to ask that. And as the healthcare provider, he only wanted to know his diagnosis and make sure it wasn't something else. And he had no intention of ever doing treatment. And I never asked that. And so I, I spent time, I don't want to say wasted, but I spent time on something that he was never actually going to seek out because that was not his goal. Um, and I think that's where the options in healthcare really kind of tie together. Um, so with the options in healthcare, when we get to finish our evaluation, and this is one of the biggest things that I changed in my clinical practice was um, we often say, uh, hey, Jeremy, you got, uh, you have an ankle sprain. You're going to come in today. We'll you know, do some, we'll do some ice. Maybe we'll do some functional exercises and then take today off. And then we'll come in tomorrow and see how you are and test you. And then maybe we can get you to play by Friday for the game. And we get, give them this time frame. We give them the best case scenario and we provide it to them and we tell them what they're going to do. What providing an option at that uh, assessment piece would look like is that you say you have three options. One is that uh, you come in and you, you do your treatment every day uh, and you follow the guidance that I have. I have a rehab plan set up for you and you come and see me every day um, given the parameters that I think is best. That's your evidence-based uh, prerogative as a healthcare provider. The second option is that you, know, you can come in a couple days, uh, you know, may uh, choose to only come once a week. Uh, I can't guarantee that you'll have playing time this week or return to play. And you may have some functional limitations that slow the healing down, but that's your option if you don't want to come in every day. The third option is you can do nothing at all. And the option there is that if you do nothing at all, I want to make sure that you know that I can't guarantee you when the return to play will be. And that I don't know what are the, the prognosis to your healing may have some long-term implications relative to your healing. And so those are the three options. Which one of those do you want to go with? And so it creates this mindset that it's not provider-driven decision-making. It's a shared decision-making with the provider, with the patient that says, 
I really know what's best. I'm going to sell it to the patient that way, but I want to make sure that they know they have options that meet their needs. So if they have a busy week and we uh, are, they're traveling or maybe grandma's sick or they have a lot of life things going on, that option to be seen every day may not be feasible. We need to provide them an option that works with their life and their, their, their timeline. And then coordination of care. So the coordination of care concept is uh, relative to uh, patients feeling uh, vulnerable and powerless in the face of illness. And I think this is uh, true, especially when we look at uh, season ending or catastrophic injuries. So if we look at uh, even concussions, if you will, that when some of these things happen and a person's identity is lost relative to sport, they often don't know where to go next. And if we think about this in terms of patients in their care, uh, we have a person that is ill or injured. They don't know, they, they may have lost their self-identity and struggling with what to do next. Um, the last thing one, they want to figure out is how to coordinate the visits, how to figure out the support services they need, how do they go pick up their medication. Um, and so our job in, in patient-centered care is coordinating these things, not executing each of these things, but helping them to understand uh, the frontline services, making sure they understand uh, the uh, kind of trajectory or the stepwise progression of healthcare in the United States. I think for a lot of people, if someone gets injured, that they don't know that if I need an MRI, I have to get an x-ray first and people don't understand that the, the medical billing associated with doing both and the, the root cause of trying to do both. And so uh, helping someone to understand and making sure they feel um, powerful, not powerless in the face of their injury. And then uh, emotional support, um, which is the last one for the education. So uh, I think behavioral mental health is becoming a more prominent issue within our society. And I, I just had this talk with my mom um, about two or three days ago, and she was saying, why do you think more people are uh, experiencing anxiety and depression um, now? And I, I, I said, I don't actually think it's more prominent. I think it's just more people are finally okay with talking about it. And I think that the, um, the fear and anxiety related to injury and the uh, relative to sport participation specifically, I think people are finally becoming okay with saying, you know, my body hurts and I, want, I, I can't participate today. Before, I think we have had this um, stigma related to sport participation that you have to be a macho, a warrior, uh, powerful, if you will, and that I can't look weak and injury was weak. And I think that created this stigma that we should suppress this conversation. And now in doing so, uh, talking about people's fear and anxiety relative to their injury and providing that emotional support really does help to reduce the likelihood of some type of mental behavioral illness that may be going on. Um, I don't have any funding from these people, so just to clear. But Healthy Roster has a great um, a new aspect that's built into their system with the safe uh, analysis and, and screening and scoring for these things. And even if you don't have Healthy Roster, it's simply just pulling a PHQ-9, which is a patient report outcome measure, and starting to like, screen these things for individuals to understand, are they in the best state to receive medical information that may be uh, cause an anxiety or fearful response for them? And if so, how do we connect them to resources to help them? And I think for athletic trainers, the way we've been taught uh, behavioral mental health is that it's recognize and refer. 
there are some things that we can do as athletic trainers through guided imagery, uh, meditation, mindfulness, and providing access to breathing exercises that in the face of anxiety or fear that the, a patient may present with, that getting an appointment for mental or behavioral health may take a day, two days, two weeks, depending on your location. And that we have the skills and abilities as athletic trainers to intervene specifically to people's um, injuries or diseases that they may have. Um, communication, the new standard on communication, which ironically is the first time we have a standard on communication, uh, but it's the idea that we have to communicate effectively with a, a variety of stakeholders. Um, and one of those stakeholders is the patient. And so the clinician-centered interviewing skills that we are taught and when we went through school and that we probably deploy on the daily is, um, I like to frame this from a mindset. So take a second to think, what do you normally ask during the history section of evaluation? So when you start, what do you usually ask? Those things probably are, do you have pain? Where is it at? What happened? Have you done anything that makes it better or worse? Um, clicking, popping, things like that. We ask these things, but typically it's in conjunction with actually putting our hands on them, testing their range of motion, maybe doing some selective tissue tests at the same time that we're never just listening to a person. And that's this idea of patient-centered interviewing. So uh, the citations up here for where this came from, uh, but the medical literature tells us that if we look at pre-participation exams, about 75% of all things that would disqualify someone from an exam comes directly from the history section itself, not the actual exams that we do. And if we think about that medical literature there, we strive and rely so heavily on a PPE exam to save the lives of people that why don't we focus the same amount of time into taking a really good history and slowing down and just listening to a person um, that we may get the diagnosis right 75% of the time if we just stop and listen to an individual. Um, I, there was a, a professor I had that said a person knows their body better than they, we know their body. And listening to someone's pain and understanding what the things that cause injury or cause that pain um, are really helpful to us to decide rather than putting on a tunnel vision of saying, I think I know what this is based off the answer to one specific um, question that we may have asked. So I'm taking you through this five-step process. So the first one is welcoming the patient, uh, using their name, um, introducing yourself, and identifying your role. This is especially true if you're working uh, like a PRN event or uh, first time with a provider. Um, I've worked PRN events for a long time, and people just don't know what we do. And I think it's important to say like, hi, I'm Zach Winkleman. I'm an athletic trainer. I'm going to be evaluating you today. Is that okay? Um, and then ensuring that they know who we are before we begin that process. I also think it helps with advocating and our, our professional identity to making sure the public knows who we are. Um, making sure that they're ready and, and have the privacy that they need. Um, in our athletic training facilities, there are often uh, tables that are surrounded by other people. Asking someone, I'm going to do your evaluation. Are you ready to proceed? Do you want to go somewhere else for this? Or are we okay where we're at? That's a quick question to just make sure that they're um, comfortable. Um, removing the barriers to communication. Sitting down on a stool or a chair at eye level creates a, a less of a power dynamic. So if you think about how an athletic table or a doctor's table is set up, um, they're typically a, a long plinth table and we stand over them and, and talk to them. But sitting down during the history portion, much like physicians do, if you think about it, they're sitting at a computer to document when they're talking to you. But as an athletic trainer, we just sat down and talked to them. We may be able to create uh, less of a power dynamic between the individuals. 
and ensure their comfort and put the patients at ease. Um, Dr. Vesey, she came down to Indiana State. She's at um, up in Chicago area, and she told a really great story. Uh, it wasn't a great story, but it was an impactful story on my, my clinical practice about a time where she had a patient and was putting them into prayer pose on the table and was doing some manual therapy with them, and the patient just started to cry, and she didn't know why, and she um, shared the story that the patient had been sexually assaulted in that same position, and that putting them in that position really created an issue for that individual. And so ensuring the comfort of that person, explaining to them what you're going to do before you do it and making sure they're at ease relative to um, when we say, hey, roll over, okay, now do this. Can you put your leg here? Can you lay half of your body off the table? When we go through some of our special tests, helping to explain it to a person to make sure that they're comfortable doing those things before we just do it. Um, indicating your time available. Um, I think this is a, a big one for secondary school athletic trainers. If you got a room full of 20 people and you want to do patient-centered care, it's hard. And when I say that, it's uh, one of the things to be patient-centered is to just tell them how much time you have to do the exam. So uh, if someone comes in and says, uh, hey, my I hurt my back last night, and uh, Ray looks at him and says, all right, I would love to look at you. I have two minutes. If that's enough time, I'd be happy to sit down with you. If you want a more full comprehensive exam and I get to talk to you a little bit more, I have some time tomorrow morning or maybe during uh, your homeroom class or maybe after practice today, I have about 20 minutes that I could probably dedicate to you if you would rather come back then. Which one of those times would you prefer? That helps to make sure that a patient gets seen, but they understand that this is gonna be a quick exam or this is gonna be a more thorough exam. Um, forecasting what you'd like to happen. This is that goal setting for the issues. Uh, and then summarizing the agenda, making sure that a person comes in knowing that you've, they've been heard and that they know the physical complaints that have been said. So summarizing at periodic points in between the patient-centered interviewing is a huge skill to make sure that you don't get lost in translation of information and that you're saying, what I've heard you say is X, Y, or Z, and making sure what you are taking in is the main, patient's main perspectives that they wanna be shared. Um, start with open-ended questions as usual, and then allow silence and nonverbal encouragement, head nods, um, eye contact, different things like that that really hone in on a person feeling valued. Then use the patient's own words and echo those back. So if someone says, my knee hurts when I go down the stairs in the morning. Say like, what I've heard you tell me is that your knee hurts when you go down the stairs in the morning. Is that correct? And so it's not directly after that person, but allow them to talk, take some of the information in, and then summarize that information by using their own words back. That allows a person to feel valued, but you're using their own language and it becomes part of your mindset rather than saying, all right, stair descent uh, or knee or hip flexion at 20 degrees is causing issues and it really causes a, a dynamic in our mind as athletic trainers of I'm thinking as healthcare, they're thinking as patient, and we're not on the same level. Um, requesting. Um, so if someone says, you know, it hurts when I go down the stairs, request more about that. Can you tell me what about that hurts? Is it when you get on the step? Is it taking off on the step? Is it the type of shoes that you're wearing when you're going down those? What are the stairs like? So requesting more information about what's specifically about the stairs that is the issue. And elicit emotional story. While I think people uh, consider patient-centered care kind of this um, uh, soft skills, if you will, like making athletic training fluffy, if you will, it's really not about that. But it's about someone telling their story. What is really the cause of the issue and what is causing the pain? If someone's coming to see you, they typically have found a limitation in their life. And if they're not telling you that, 
they're probably not telling you the full story. And so for someone to actually come and tell you, my shoulder hurts, there's probably something going on um, that we need to find out the reason why. And then step five, summarizing, checking for accuracy, and then switching gears and then letting them know like, all right, I'm going to begin our physical exam now. Just want to make sure that you understand what's going to go on. That next step should also include one thing that's not on here, but it's asking the permission to touch someone. So in athletic training, we often just start putting our hands on people. And one, we don't wash our hands enough in athletic training. So public health alert, wash your hands more, please. But two, the idea that a patient needs to know that you're going to start palpating and touching them and, and doing some things to them uh, relative to the, the exam. Um, another example of this is this, this uh, a quicker example. So a five elicit feelings, ideas, function, and expectations. What do you, what's going on? What do you think's going on? What's your function like? And then what are your expectations or your goals for the exam and to get better? So this is that step five step approach broken down into a quick acronym that you could use in your practice as well. And then finally, the, the last uh, standard relative to patient-centered care is the ICF model or the uh, disablement model. And if we look about at the disablement model, this has been around in athletic training for a couple of years now, but it's this idea of providing whole person healthcare um, that we need to define um, a common language to link everyone together. And the disablement model can do that. And in doing so, it's really reinforcing the idea of health-related quality of life, that it's not about sport participation, it's about how does the activities and the participation in sport, work, and life really factor together uh, to impact someone's health condition and their personal factors. Um, so if someone has a sprained ankle and they have a softball game this weekend, but they also have prom coming up, how do we look at the context of someone's uh, personal life and the personal factors relative to sport participation, but also the things that they may having to do in terms of uh, standing all day and stocking shelves at night at a local grocery store to make money to, to uh, support their family too. Um, so this is a quote from Patch Adams, treat disease, you win, you lose, you treat a person, you'll win no matter what the outcome. And this is this idea of how do we connect all of these things together to the person? So to do so, you have to, you have to learn about this. Um, and I, I think that people just assume people are good people. Um, but if we look at some of the research, especially the top one from Dr. Cavallario and colleagues, uh, this one found that uh, only 25% of athletic training students were actually implementing patient-centered care concepts into their clinical practice as they were learning about it. And I think that's important to know that um, this was one of the first times that people actually explored what students were doing. And if students aren't doing it um, now, the likelihood that they take those behaviors into their clinical practice is low. So we have to make sure that people are exposed and learning about it. We have to make sure that people know there's a link between social context and personal life, that um, a holistic approach to athletic healthcare has to consider uh, someone's cultural background, their social background, and their, their professional life as a student athlete or whatever that may be. Um, those things drive each other and compound and conflict with each other. Um, this is a soapbox of my own, but we got to stop the golden rule. Um, the golden rule is treat others how you wish to be treated, right? And the idea in that is that we are placing our mindset, the me, in that process. Um, it's a great place to start. So if you are struggling with patient-centered care, keep it up. But if you're ready to take your practice to the next level, 
this is where you have to stop saying, what do I think is best? Or what would I do as a patient? Or what would I want to ha happen to me and say, what makes my patients unique and different? And how can I meet the needs of them uh, relative to the services I can provide? Um, and then emphasizing it's okay to do things differently. I think um, patients often see something else happening and want the same thing, but we also have to emphasize to them that some things that they don't see um, being done, maybe providing them resources in the community, uh, connection back to different individuals about who can be helpful for them. Um, those things you don't always get to see. And those are the things where we provide that extra layer, layer or level of support. Um, starting the conversation on social justice, I think is a huge, huge uh, mindset shift. Um, so if we start to discuss this in terms of healthcare, that um, how we look at gun violence or mass shootings uh, relative to our preparedness and emergency uh, care skills as athletic trainers, um, understanding that someone's gender identity does matter, especially when we start to use their name doing the patient-centered care perspective. If someone's transitioning in their life um, and going through a sex change, um, we need to be be mindful that we need to use their, their name, not their dead name, and how to understand gender identity is a construct of patient-centered care and being an empathetic person. Um, looking at veteran affairs and seeing how we can see the con connection between exposure to traumatic events and long-term healthcare complications. Um, and practicing the uncomfortable. It's really hard to do all of this at once. Um, but it's also hard to unteach the skills we've learned. Um, so you're probably going to listen to this podcast, go back to your clinical practice and do the first time a history exam the same exact way that you did it the last 15 years you've been practicing. Um, but my, my goal or my ask to you is that you try one thing differently. If that's sitting on a stool and making eye contact with someone, you've started the process. Or if it's saying, I'm going to ask someone their goals today, and I've never done that before, that starts the process. Doing everything together at once is not achievable. And I never want someone to go in thinking, I got to shift my whole mindset today. It's not going to work. Um, so think about how you can um, take one thing from this and start moving it forward. And then... How do you assess that you're actually being patient-centered? Um, the top study um, actually has a appendix available that uh, has a list of patient-centered care tools to measure your success. I'd suggest that you use one of those and not just make up a random patient-centered care tool that says like, I'm being patient-centered. And the reason for that is I'll share in a little bit. Um, so use one of these tools that connects this back together. Um, got to stop our diagnosis mindset that it's not about getting the diagnosis correct. It's about finding out the connection between the complex issues of the person. Um, and then if you're a preceptor, especially um, for a program or for athletic training students or even student aides that we, we need to start having this conversation with them earlier on um, that we begin to talk about how we are incorporating or thinking about these techniques. It may be in our mind, but we need to verbalize that to the people that we're mentoring as well. So this was um, the research that uh, Ansley Redinger, she's at Indiana State. She works up in Boise, Idaho uh, at a high school. Uh, myself and Dr. Everman from Indiana State, uh, we performed this last year. Ansley will actually be presenting this at NATA um, on the uh, quantitative data. Um, so I'm gonna touch on it really quick, but I'm gonna explore the qualitative data a little bit more. So what we did was uh, a multi-part uh, survey out to collegiate student athletes. And we asked them about uh, patient-centered care perspectives of the athletic trainers they interacted with. 
And so we use two different patient-centered care tools. The reason for that was they explored different concepts, but we also wanted to see if uh, one tool would score one differently than the other. And then we asked them one question at the very beginning of the survey that said, define patient-centered care in your own words. Just asking someone if they actually knew what, was, what it was. Um, and so from that, we had 627 responses from individuals of all three NCAA levels, so division one, two, and three. What we found from the quantitative data, which Ansley is going to present at NATA, is that um, participants said that uh, 12 of the 16 constructs, they felt that they strongly agreed with that the athletic trainer was um, patient-centered, that they work with at their schools. That's good. That, that's really good. And if we look at the data below, um, some of the, the references here are some of the, the higher constructs, so encouraging them to take their own role, uh, discussing their respective roles in the healthcare and setting goals for their treatment. Um, on the other tool though, these were the two highest and the two lowest that uh, regardless of an experience with an athletic trainer, how they felt about the athletic trainers at their school. So regardless if they had seen or gone into the athletic training facility, they felt that athletic trainers at their school were culturally competent and delivered care that was respectful of their preferences but struggled with the areas that the athletic trainers addressed fears and anxieties and involved a social support system. And I think in um, the bigger picture of this, that I would agree that those are areas that we probably struggle with. How do we interact with others, especially when they're adults um, in the college setting is that we may feel that, you know, this is your own healthcare, you work through it. Um, but we often, if we've ever been sick, you know, you, you call your mom still when you're 30 years old, or you, you just want someone to help you when you're sick, right? And the same thing goes as true of athletic training. And so the uh, other data from this was that in red, what I wanted to point out was 8%, um, which is a really low number, but, but about 50 people said that they strongly disagreed that an athletic trainer had the ability to make a healthcare status decision without influence from coaches. While the number, that percentage is low, that's still 50 people out there that believed that an athletic trainer was influenced from coaches relative to their medical decisions. And um, another 100 people uh, from the survey, almost 20% reported that an athletic trainer made them participate when they were medically disqualified from a doctor um, at some point in their career. Those data tell us that athletic trainers may not be being patient-centered in all perspectives of the, of the care. And that's where the qualitative data came in so strong. So qualitative research allows a person to type in a response or share their story, and then we look at it. And so from the study, we found that there was 13 topics that kind of fit in here. Um, and the larger the circle here means more responses relative to that area. So we see the largest one being individualized, uh, the next being um, uh, priority and best um, being the next two. And then the color coding is uh, using text IQ technology. So based off how a person wrote their response into the online survey, it gave the statement as a positive response, a neutral response, a mixed or negative. So if people wrote nots, don'ts, um, things like that, they wrote it from the perspective of a negative versus a positive view of patient-centered care. And so you can see that the knots are the negative responses are the self-care, the unsure um, in those areas. But the people that saw a positive perspective, uh, perspective were the best, the individual, things like that. So I want to share some of the quotes here and with you. So um, 
I know that I, it took everything out of me not to write athletic trainers. So just, um, I just a disclaimer, these are direct quotes from the individual. So uh, when the trainer helps the athlete, um, we asked someone, what is patient-centered care? And that's what they said. Um, uh, another person said, I've never heard of this term before. Um, very one-on-one -on -one based. I feel like I'm being treated as only an athlete, but as the person I am. Um, interestingly, uh, they really defined it based off the term or care that puts the patient in the middle of the room, like literally patient-centered care, like a patient in the middle of the room. And I think the reason that I highlight some of these is the complex um, defining process that it is for someone to understand really what is this. Um, someone defined it as digital healthcare, so using technology to provide care. Um, and then uh, the one in the bottom corner is uh, more important that their injury is more important than the inquiry of an athletic trainer, that the person that's sitting on the table is the most important part. These are a little bit longer ones. The two on the left, I'm going to leave up here for a little bit, but I think these are some of the, the more interesting ones. The patients, the top one I'll read to you. It's when the athletic trainer listens to what you say. When I say what I mean, uh, really listen and not say, you just need to put ice or heat or roll it. They shouldn't ignore when we just say something actually hurts because not everything is just sore. I feel as if we're constantly telling the trainer that something on our body is hurt and they just keep telling us that it's sore and that gives us the sense that either they're lazy or simply just don't care. We shouldn't have any thoughts on whether or not our trainer actually cares about our well-being with anything other than a concussion because that's the only thing they really make sure that they actually give you treatment for. If that's not a telling treatment that say takes some more time today to talk to a person, um, I don't know what is. That uh, I think we often do some of triage or care and we have to take a step back to realize patients realize this and they need to feel valued. Um, and the bottom one is really about the idea that one team or one person is not important to the other. I know growing up in Texas, football was life, um, and we may put more resources and things towards that, but this idea that a person that is on the tennis team or the cross-country team is just as important as the starting quarterback, and the athletic directors and coaches have to know that uh, moving forward. So from all this data that we collected on the 600 and so student athletes, the main thing was that they thought athletic trainers were patient-centered, which was really great. But when we asked them to define what patient-centered care was, we saw that there was a dichotomy split there, that patients defined patient-centered care differently than how patient-centered care has been defined. So at the beginning of the presentation, I told you, Picker and the, um, the healthcare provider uh, professions define patient-centered care based off what they think patients needed. But if we look at this data, student athletes, specifically at the college, think that they want the best care. They want individualized one-on-one -on -one care. And that is the idea of patient-centered care in athletic training. But how do we reframe the mind of the student athlete to think about the other pitchers? Or how do we start to adopt a patient-centered care mindset that adopts that same practices? And that's where I think the profession has to begin to look that um, it's, best care is nowhere described in patient-centered care. It, we always want to provide the best care. That's not being patient-centered. And that's the, the bigger, I think, issue for us. And then the people that responded that it was about providing care, so they literally said when a person provides care, or they said when a patient provides care to themselves, or they literally just said, I, I don't know, or, I'm not sure. Those student athletes, um, they need some help to understand the healthcare system. As a student athlete, they may have not been seen by an athletic trainer and they may not know the access to care or resources that they may be able to receive. 
So just a quick recap to, to finish up. Um, it's much more important to know what sort of a patient has a disease than what sort of a disease a patient has. Use that to drive your practice the rest of the day. Uh, think about the person first rather than trying to figure out what the diagnosis is. Um, explore the whole patient. Emphasize that getting the diagnosis correct is not our immediate goal. Ask them about their life. Talk to them and take a moment to discuss some of these social determinants of health, uh, their health literacy, um, incorporating their social factors and their social support system into your care. And this is a habit. Start small, build on it. Don't try to take on too much at once. Um, figure out an aspect, whether that's asking permission to touch, setting goals, uh, sitting down in a chair, figuring out one of those things to start to build on, make it a habit and build upon that slowly as you begin into your clinical practice. Uh, my email and Twitter accounts down at the bottom. Be happy to connect with anybody if y'all have any more questions, but um, yeah, that's all for the presentation. All right, so this is actually very cool. Um, it's one of the things that I've been working on. I've been trying to implement these things, but I don't I don't know that I had like all the steps like, oh, here's an easy way to do this, but it's just some of those things that you pick up. And that's one of the things that you mentioned there. This is, this is not, okay, you have to fix everything right now. This is one of the things that, okay, just try sitting down. Just, just be intentional about sitting down or be intentional about asking permission. Hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to evaluate your leg. Is that okay? Are you okay with that? I touch you. So just picking one thing and adding that into your uh, evaluation process. I think that's, that's really like a crucial piece to take out of all of this. Cause I mean, you know, we just, you just talked for an hour about patient centered care, but taking just one little piece and starting today at your very next evaluation is the, is the most important step because then you're at least making progress. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's the same concept when we go to conferences, right? So if you go to NATA, you sit there for four days, you go to sessions all day long, and then you have decision fatigue about what do I actually implement? I just heard six different mindsets about ACL protocols, like which one do I actually do now? And it's this idea of having to figure out one thing, implementing it, see if it affects or changes your practice, and then making the next decision based off that. So um, I, it, it's just too hard to do it all at once. And I think that's the bigger picture relative to all um, kind of new techniques or new things you want to involve. So if you've learned cupping and dry needling and all this stuff over the past couple of weeks, you shouldn't throw the whole kitchen sink at someone. It's the same idea of patient-centered care. Don't throw, assess all the social determinants of health and then assess their health literacy and do all these things all at once because it's it's overwhelming and you don't know what to do with the, the findings once you figure it out. Like which one of those was actually the thing that changed my practice? Another one of the things that you mentioned is, hey, I have two minutes right now for an evaluation. Do you, are you going to need more time than that? If so, then you need to come back in an hour, you know, because for us here at Pasadena High School, seventh period is the busiest time because we have about eight different teams in that one athletic period. And so from 1.30 until 3.30 is like the busiest time. But if you need individual attention, okay, we'll come back at 3.30, come back at, at 4, and then I'll, I'll give you 30 minutes worth of an evaluation. We can sit, we can talk, that kind of thing. And so that's another crucial step there. And again, you put that in the, that five-step thing, communicating clearly. But uh, that's something that John Seco mentioned when we talked about like leadership Um and so it's, it's good to bring that back and something that I've talked to Sophia about, but we haven't like really implemented well yet, but maybe it was just too many things at one time to try and implement. And we're, you know, so again, this is a really good reminder and a great conversation, Ray. Yeah. I think with the scheduling, the, the concept too is 
uh, if you use Sportswear, you can schedule directly in Sportswear. And so if you're working at a place like that, that allows you to schedule throughout the day to use some of those resources that's built into some EMR systems. Um, and then the idea too that um, with the, the scheduling or finding the time for an individual, I didn't have the perspective of what else it could look like until I moved to Indiana. So in Texas, uh, the athletic trainers at the school were there all day. They got there at seven when school started, they worked through the whole day, they left at seven when I left and when practice got done. And so I, that's how I envisioned healthcare and how athletic training was delivered. And then I moved to Indiana and the athletic trainers got there at 2.30 or three when school got out because they were contracted through the hospital system. And so it was just reframing this whole mindset that we had periods throughout the day for athletics or PE periods that we could see people individually. And so I never saw the mad rush of people because we could do individualized care throughout the day. And the same thing can't be true of all settings. And so what works for one person may not work for the next. And so it's important to explore what your scheduling practices look like and how you can adapt or adopt to different practices that work for, or for others too. Yeah, and then in that same conversation, you know, obviously as athletic trainers recently had like a conversation about are we first responders? Well, we in our setting, we are. So if somebody calls, hey, you you know, at 3.30 when you have this appointment with this kid that you told you would evaluate at 3.30 and then baseball practice, somebody slides and there's a dislocated ankle. Well, I'm sorry, I have to go take care of this emergency. I know I told you 3.30. And so, again, some people are going to be listening to this podcast thinking, but that won't work in my setting. That won't work for me. Well, okay. We're not saying this is what you have to do. Here's here's something that can help to focus this more on the patient, giving them a better outcome because they're buying in, they're feeling valued, they're feeling like they're in the center of the room. So, And then you also mentioned the golden rule, which is really interesting because I've never heard anybody say it like that before because you do want to be treated well, right? And so you think, okay, well, if I want somebody to treat me well, I want somebody to explain my diagnosis well, then that's how I'm going to do it to other people. But just like you were talking about that kid in that prayer pose being sexually assaulted, well, you don't know their their situation. It's not about you. It is about that person. And you have to be able to understand their perspective. And so we are licensed foster parents. And so there's so much that we have learned through the trainings and the process that this isn't about you. You have to understand their situation. You have to be willing to stop, step back out of the situation, step out of your perceptions and look at what they're going through and what's really important to them at that time. Right. And so this is like, for me, it's like, I just keep getting the same message over and over and over again. I, I guess I'm really stubborn and guys just really trying to say, Hey, this is what you need to learn right here. Right. So it's not about you. And so with this being my 16th year as a athletic trainer in the high school, I'm just now learning to ask all those questions, repeat back those words like you're doing just even, um, yesterday when I was doing an evaluation, I was doing that, you know, I was like, all right, so you, so it hurts when you're going down the stairs. All right. So you're telling me, like it hurts when you get on the stairs, but not if you're running straight forward. And this, is that, is that sound about right? And so those are things that I've begun to implement just because of these conversations. Yeah. And I, I mean, Jeremy, I think that's the cool thing. Uh, and Zach as well, this is the cool thing about the podcast is just having, um, 
this accessible to just all different sor uh, sorts of clinicians. Um, and I'll, I'll speak on my perspective here. Uh, so I now I work at a private school here in Houston uh, and in the energy corridor, and uh, it's a pretty affluent population. Uh, and just said you just said you had mentioned before, Zach, uh, we got you know, it's an international school. We're the only international boarding school in the city of Houston. Uh, we got kids from over 80 different countries here. Um, and the uh, school that I worked at prior uh, was in North Houston and Aldean. And, um, and uh, so we talk about, you know, one socioeconomic background and the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Um, so um, one thing that I've adopted <clears throat> is, uh, so I say two L's uh, and two E's. So you listen, you learn, you empathize, and then you educate. Um, so again, two L's, two E's, listen, learn, ed uh, empathize, educate. Um, and it's, it, I think it's taken me a long way as an individual healthcare pr practitioner, um, but it's something that I'm trying to get the, the coaches here to buy, to buy into as well and uh, our administration to buy, buy into as well. Um, so going off of that, Zach, one question that I, want, that I had for you was, um, you know, how do you get um, everyone involved in, um, you know, kind of gearing them towards the, the patient-centered approach? Um, you know, when, when you talk to, uh, I guess, specifically our role um, in getting their, you know, uh, when you're talking to a parent, you know, getting their kid back to return to play safely and effectively. And then, you know, on, along that lines, you know, speaking with the coaches as well. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a complex process because I think what you have to do is use the patient-centered care mindset on all of those stakeholders. And so if you um, use that same approach, but take out the patient perspective and you just uh, kind of use that same interviewing skills or style. So when you're going to go talk to the athletic director about their starting quarterback not playing this week, sitting down with them at eye level, discussing what your the goal for the appointment is, what you're planning to meet with them about, discussing the, the findings that you've found, uh, what are their expectations for this person, explaining to them their expectations that they've shared, and then moving through that same process. Um, I think for sometimes it's hard for coaches or parents to hear something that they don't want to hear. And I think for sometimes, especially minors, they are fearful of telling that person that information. And so for us, we become that liaison between the two parties that the patients told me they don't want to practice. Like, no, that's not what they tell me. And so how do you work through that together uh, to find the, the best outcome that meets everyone's goals? Um, and the, I think the bigger part is that connecting back that, you know, the, the parent or the coach may be the, the issue. And I think that's hard time, uh, hard for some people to recognize sometimes. And that creates this extra layer that I think is what makes people apprehensible to doing this. Um, so say that a person comes to you and they say, I really don't want to go to practice this week. And they go over and over and like, I just, I don't want to practice. And you're like, you're, your knee is fine. Like I have no reason to hold you out. Like, I just don't, I really don't want to go. But then you find out that the kids are bullying them. The coach makes them do bear crawls for no reason. And they feel like they have this punishment going on and that they are asking you to help them because they don't want to go back to that environment, but they have social pressures from home to be an athlete and to be a, be a person that's involved in their school and their sport. And you're not a quitter. And how do you create this, this identity for this person that they're asking you to help them because they don't know a way out from the situation. And I think at those moments, we have to act on the best interest of that person because if we look at holistic healthcare, our job is to provide that physical, but also mental behavioral, that if our goal is to help them in that aspect, that 
I, my opinion is I would hold them out. I'm going to treat them, but I'm going to get you help in that time. And that's not doing rehab on a knee injury. That's not real, but it's to get you in with the school counselor or someone else to talk about the issues and how to move forward. So using that time where they're out, you know, but to use it effectively in terms of the interventions you provide, which I know is a specific example, but um, I think it's just connecting the, um, connecting the pieces all together to make sure that the, the stakeholders are all on the same page relative to the goals of the individuals. And they understand that your, your goals are not to hold anybody out or your goals are not to impede on their performance or um, get them back to a play to turn, return to play too fast. That's never the goal of an athletic trainer. That's not our mindsets ever. And I think people have to have that sense of trust and our, our skills before you can ever take this into, um, into practice, I think like you got to work with a good team of people before you get going into patient centered care. Like you got to work with people that trust that what you're doing is going to help them in the long run. All right. So I want to go back to this question that I had got on, I posted it on Twitter, but it was from Facebook, right? So I'm going to read it here. It says, say you get a note from a mother that says her son's ankle has been bothering him and she wants you to look at it. And regardless of what you determine, she'd like him not to work out for a few days. Then your new AD says, mama notes are not acceptable. What do you do? I can't overrule mom. I told him as much. If a kid doesn't like math, he is, um, I told him, if a kid doesn't like math, he still has to take math, right? Well, I mean, yeah, I guess. So we lift weights and run every day, except meet or game days. So it's kind of like a confusing conversation between the athletic trainer and the AD involving the parent. So Zach, you're that athletic trainer in that situation. Uh, what do you do? Uh, he's sitting out. Um, so the my first conversation would be with the mom. Um, to ask what the reason or rationale why they that person's sitting out um, and helping them to inform them that rest relative to conditions may be helpful or harmful and that it's not always about um, not doing anything and how sometimes being physically active or being part of emotional support system, say their team, can also be helpful and that um, removing them from activity or their their group may actually be harmful in some cases so it's really starting with that conversation with the parent of saying what is the reason that you want to keep this person out um, understanding their mindset and educating them about the bigger picture then taking that to the patient and talking to them like i've evaluated you this is what we see um, based off conversations with your mom and say that she still wants to move forward with this that your mom that they um they're, dri they're driving factors that we want to keep you out a few days for X, Y, or Z. For my purpose, I would say for, you know, to make sure that you're healthy for the long term and that you're good to go for games two, three weeks down the road that we're going to hold you up. And that that would be my driving force and factor. Um, I think this is that whole idea of independent medical care that college and universities thankfully have uh, a layer. Doesn't mean it happens, but, you know, it's, it's there. It's a rule now, but it doesn't mean it's happening. But I really think that this is that same idea or mindset that a coach, an athletic director does not decide this and a parent and a, a patient are the ones that should be driving this factor together with you. Um, but it's also our job to inform and educate them that what you're wishing, we can accommodate, but I want you to know why you're doing that. Like, what is your background or reasoning for the decisions you're choosing for your child? Yeah, so that's, again, an interesting thing. It's because you 
you want to support the patient and the parent, right? And so if you say, no, your mom's wrong, your mom doesn't know what she's talking about. Well, what if that patient says, well, my mom is an orthopedic surgeon and you're like, oh, wait, maybe she (laughs) is, right? And so then it's kind of like, okay, well, let's have that conversation with mom. Let's see why. And I'm not going to set myself up as against you or your mom. I'm going to say, okay, look, we're on the same team. I want you to be healthy. Is This is what you and your mom have decided. You feel like you need to be healthy. This is what I feel like. What do you guys want to do? How do you want to proceed? Just like you said. So uh, if you were to say, hey, that other chiropractor, hey, that other doctor doesn't know what they're talking about, well, then you're working against the medical community and you're not building that community and relationship and you're not understanding the whole situation. So I think that's, I don't know, I really liked your, your answer is first talk with the parent and understand the reasoning uh, and find out why. So, um, One quick like little note from Ray's 2L2E thing. I love that idea about implementing that. I think that's a, a, it's a great way. It's similar to like the five kind of mindset, like do something that reminds you to do it every time. Um, with the first E, the empathy, I think sometimes what we do is we often respond back like, oh, I understand how you feel. And it's probably one of the worst things we can do because it uh, minimizes the person's reaction to their own conditions or their own feelings. And especially if we haven't been through, through those scenarios. So if someone walks up to me and they tore their ACL, I was like, oh, I'm so sorry, Ray. Like, I know how you feel. I don't know how you feel. I've never torn my ACL. Like, I don't know what that feels like. I don't know what it's like to play college sports and tear my ACL. Like, I don't know. And so at that moment, it's about saying, thank you for sharing that with me. I appreciate your vulnerability. I appreciate you being open to do those things with me. And that's what empathy looks like. It's not having to be that I understand what you've been through or I, I get your feelings. Like that's not what empathy is about. It's about that connection, that trust between the two people. Yeah. Yeah, And that's one of the things that similar along the same line is you're going to be fine. Well, when the coach, the teammate, oh, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. Uh, But you don't know that. Like, I just evaluated torn ACL. Don't come over here and tell them they're going to be fine. When I'm having to tell them, hey, you're torn ACL, you're a senior, you're you're done, right? You probably won't play anymore. You're not going on to college. So this is it. You just finished your high school career, and you're telling them they're going to be fine. In the long run, they are. But right now, they're not. They're going to be an emotional wreck. They're going to be a ball. They're going to be crying. They're going to be upset, angry, whatever it is. They're not okay right now. Eventually, they will be fine. But let's let's let them be upset. Let's let them be hurt. Tell them that's what they're going to experience. Tell mm-hmm. them this is what most people experience. But we're here for you. So right. The the I had a similar conversation with Dr. Eberman at Indiana State when I was a, a graduate assistant. Um, we had a class on athletic training educator and it, and it helped me to reframe this, that when we teach people, we often think about me as an educator in the classroom, but athletic trainers are all teachers every day. We provide patient education every day. And one of the most, um, common questions that we ask in athletic training is this idea of when we finish an exam or get done with rehab or get done talking to someone, the one thing we always ask is, do you have any questions? And that's how we almost end every one of our interactions. And the problem with that is people don't know what they don't know, and so they don't know what to ask at that moment. And so something that I started implementing in my practice was a teach-back method. So um, if I've given someone a a patient education and relative to some information that uh, may be uh, 
some interventions or home care, uh, self-care type things that I would go back through them and say like, all right, Jeremy, so I told you some things. Can you tell me what you remember from the stuff I just told you? And that implementing those things back. And that kind of was guided from those interactions in class. But there's also a lawsuit that happened back in the 70s at, at Southern Utah University where uh, a person, an athletic trainer and a, a team doctor had told someone with an ankle sprain to go home and ice and that they went home and ice and put their foot in a bucket of water and kept their foot in the bucket of water and they didn't realize that they were only supposed to ice for 20 minutes and put they take their foot out so they fell asleep with it got gangrene had to have a toe removed like a whole whole nine yard type thing and so it's like this idea that patient education comes with a, a responsibility on ourselves to make sure that we don't just give it but people comprehend it and um i think a teach back at the end of the the interaction is a great way to just saying do you actually hear, did you hear what I told you? Um, and can I make sure that you leave with the key information that you need? So one of the steps that you mentioned in that five-step process earlier was repeat back the patient's words. And so similar, I say, all right, so explain to me what I told you. Or like looking at a concussion evaluation. I mean, the concussion um, five-step return to play protocol. So I'll say, okay, here is what you're doing today. Read it and then come tell me what you're doing. Yeah, because of because of that, because I want them to understand and I want them to be able to communicate. Not just re, can you read a paper, but come tell me what you're doing, what you're supposed to be doing, and now let's go do it. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to just start the process of implementing those things. Um, I think with the patient education relative to concussions, it's so important right now that people understand what they're doing, but also long term complications, implications of what they're doing, and those are the the step process that. I understand what I was doing each day of that return to play, and I am making the conscious decision to return to play after someone has told me I'm healthy, but I've made that decision that I am now ready to return to play too. Yeah, yeah I think there's a there's a big uh, you know account- accountability aspect to it on on well on everyone's end, but especially on you know you're placing the accountability on the athlete as well. Um, so, um, you know, one thing I always tell our kids is, you know, I'm not just the athletic trainer and, you know, helping you get back, back onto the football field or tennis court or whatnot. Like we're actually teaching you life skills too. So, um, you know, this is, that's another important aspect of it. You know, this isn't just about sports and your, your progression back to, you know, full return to play as an athlete, but this is about making you a better person, a better son, a better daughter, you know, friend, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I, I, I agree with, I, I love that, uh, Jeremy, just the accountability aspect from the, from the athlete as well. So, uh, just following on what, um, Jeremy was saying a lot of times, whenever I send kids with a home exercise program, I give them, you know, two, three exercise at the most, because I know if I give them more, they're probably not going to do them. Right. So I give them the exercises, I explain it to them and I ask them, okay, do you understand? And most of the time they say yes. And then I go back and ask them to explain to me how to do the exercises. And then that's when they're like, okay, can you repeat to me how to do them again? And then following that uh, for future treatments, uh, I tend to find that, you know, they pay attention and that I only need to repeat myself maybe once. So that, that helps a lot too. Yeah, I think one important thing that I've noticed um, for, uh, and I'm, I've been in the high school setting for the past two years, and prior to that was a collegiate setting, but um, in the high school setting is uh, your, your preseason meetings with coaches and parents. Um, and uh, kind of going back to what you were saying, Sophia, and, and again, talking about accountability, um, just making sure that this is a, it's not a me process, it's a we process. 
And so it's, you know, my, my, um, my actions and my, my course of actions, that's the athletic trainer, but it's also the students course of actions, the, the coaches coach uh, course of actions, and as well as the parents, it's just making sure we're all looped in um, towards, again, getting them back to uh, what their idea is of, of, of normal. And uh, there, there's no normal is a relative term. Um, and, you know, <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's all based on what, again, you know, asking them questions like, what is your normal? Like what, how, how does it feel? Is, do you feel hundred percent? Do you feel 85%? You know, give me, give me a number. Like let's, let's have this conversation. Um, but, uh, but yeah, one thing that I, I think is important to incorporate and again, talking back to preseason meetings is just, um, you know, letting, uh, and this is kind of going back to that, um, uh, the, the Twitter, uh, where, uh, uh Jeremy had mentioned the, you know, the parent holding the kid out for an ankle sprain. Um, uh, you know, letting, letting the, the parents, um, know your role and, um, you know, trying to help the, the, the person feel better. Um, and again, it's not just about the, the physical, but, uh, you know, the psychosocial aspect as well. So, yeah, I think with the, the concept of normal, it's so interesting. Like I, I talk about that often too, relative to the idea that when we do pain assessments during our evaluations, we often say the idea of. Um, all right, so where's your pain at? Like zero being whatever to 10 getting hit by a bus or 10 being mauled by a bear or whatever it is. And that's not how the pain scale is ever developed. And that's the, the a fundamental issue. So it's zero being no pain at all, 10 being your worst imaginable pain or the worst pain that you as a person can imagine. And that's relative to an individual. So when I see things on Twitter or social media, they're like, people are faking their injuries or their pain is so high, you have an ankle sprain, how is that possible? Well, that pain and that progress of that pain is respective to that person. So if they're an eight out of 10 for that person, your goal setting should be relative to that, not saying I need you at a two out of 10 when a person was an eight out of 10 the day before. And relative to what you think, the golden rule again, what you think a um, ankle sprain pain should be may not be the same for every individual. And I think it's this idea that we don't know what people have been through. So if you give a, a 10 as going to the hospital or having your leg cut off, the likelihood that you got hit by a bus, mauled by a bear, whatever it is, is probably pretty low, especially for a high school kid that those probably haven't had those experiences yet. And so they may not be able to reference if 10 is being mauled by a bear. I don't know what that's like. So that sounds bad. So is that really their worst or is right now the pain that they're experiencing the worst pain that they've ever had in their life, which may be the case. That's good because I actually use that all the time. Like, are you you're having animals rip you apart, ripping your ripping your limbs off while you're alive, right? So you're being eaten alive by wild animals. I use that all the time because yeah. it's just like, okay, well, let's put this in reference. But it, that's good that it needs to be in reference to to the patient. So I think I'm gonna, you know, what's the worst imaginable worst imaginable pain for you? So good, thanks for that. Uh, so Sophia actually learned English at about ten years old, right? And so we talked about literacy and healthcare and understanding. And so kind of jumping into that situation with you, if you ever went to the doctor when you were nine, 10, learning English, did you go to like an English speaking doctor or did you find one that spoke Spanish? So my mom would usually find a doctor that spoke Spanish because she wanted in, wanted to be involved in the, in the process. So she would usually find a doctor that spoke Spanish. And then... So growing up, you know, through high school, you played sports in high school and that kind of thing. 
did you feel comfortable asking those questions of your athletic trainer as you were still like learning language, learning the English language? And then like, if you had to go to the doctor, cause I know you said you had an injury uh, that lasted a while. Talk to me just about that process of, of you as a limited English learner at that time. Um, I was pretty shy. I mean, when I was in high school, I was really shy just because I didn't speak the language very well. So just communicating with my peers was hard. Now communicating with adults was even harder and I just practically avoided the whole, the whole issue. So there was one time when I injured myself playing soccer back in high school and, you know, I did tell my coach, Hey, my back does hurt. And then she sent me to the athletic trainer, but that was pretty much it. Like, uh, I didn't go into detail of how bad my back was hurting. So I, I didn't get proper treatment for that because I, I didn't communicate that well. So do you, do you feel that the language barrier at all was part of the problem or maybe a cultural understanding of communicating that or maybe the athletic trainer didn't ask enough questions? It was probably a little bit of everything. So since I had issues communicating, I didn't really ask a lot of questions. And the athletic trainer probably didn't, you know, ask the questions that needed to be asked as well. So I didn't, I didn't you know, think of asking those questions either. So it was half and half, I would think. I think that happens often when people explore people's background culture. So if you look at individuals that um, are Hispanic and how uh, the complexities of uh, different cultures in Hispanic. So um, like my sister-in-law is Colombian and how a Colombian culture is different than Puerto Rican and Mexican culture and how it's hard to just clump everybody together under Hispanic because cultures are so different but the cultural expectations of families relative to pain, injury, and sport participation are also there too. So are you allowed to be hurt? Are you supposed to come home and say like, this was the, the day I had, and this is the things I'm dealing with or the struggles that I'm going through and how we as healthcare providers have to be mindful that, you know, if a parent is dismissive of a person's pain, that it may not be that they actually feel that way. It just may be a cultural norm of their, uh, of their backgrounds. And I'm not saying this is true of Hispanics, but of uh, ex experiences with people from Pakistan and India and uh, African-American backgrounds that you have to be mindful that your experiences don't look like that of everyone in your family makeup and how people react to injury, illness, and disease all may not look the same. All right. So I know you stepped out again. And part of the reason that Sophia stepped out was to communicate with a parent in Spanish that I couldn't do uh, from an injury. And so it's it was just another one of those things where we're when we hired Sophia, that was one of the big draws was the fluent Spanish so that she could break those barriers that I couldn't and, and make those student athletes feel more comfortable. And so, again, I'm, you know, I've talked multiple times about how I'm excited about having Sophia here and um it's a really great asset, but any other questions you have for Dr. Winkleman about patient-centered care or Dr. Winkleman and, or Ray, any other things you guys got? No, no. I'm, the PowerPoint was really, really, really helpful. And, you know, that pain skill you were talking about, you know, makes me think back on what I have been telling the athlete. So definitely going to be something I use now. So, Yeah, what, Zach, what I, I agree Sophia, uh, what I loved about it is just kind of the step-by-step -step breakdown of just the way to think uh, in terms of patient-centered uh, care. Um, and, I, and I know Jeremy kind of alluded to that a little bit earlier too. So I know for me as a clinician, it's it's going to be something that uh, you know I'll look into a little bit later and figure out, uh, uh, as you said, how to how to build on best practices moving forward.
Dr. Winkleman? Uh, I'm good. I think I, I just want to reiterate one more time that, you know, it's this is hour and a half discussion on patient-centered care, but find something from it that you really resonate with and be comfortable with the uncomfortable. So if it's talking to someone about, can I, do I have permission to touch you? Which for the first time when I did that, I was like, this is going to be really awkward asking a 20 year old, do I have permission to touch you? And I was like, I don't know how to frame this correctly. And there's so many ways that you can mess up. And if it goes wrong the first time, give it another shot. And if you ask someone um, and you sit down and start to do this and it just doesn't flow well, figure out what went wrong and try to reframe the thinking and mindset about it again and say, not to say that this isn't work for me. I'm not patient centered. This is phony or this is foolish or waste of my time. Try to figure out what went well, what didn't go well and talk to other colleagues that may be working with you or seeing you in your interactions and say, what do you think the things that I may be able to pick up the most improve my care? Where are the aspects that you see that I may have some deficits? And I think that's that, that layer of vulnerability that we need to have within athletic training that we often say that we don't want to look like less than to others that we work with. And I think sometimes we need to sit down with the people that we work with if we're fortunate to work with other people that um, we ask them, what are the things you think I'm, I'm struggling with in terms of being a competent and, and a proficient healthcare provider? And I think that's a great way to start the conversation relative to how to help each other uh, move through the patient-centered care aspects. Very good. This is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash patient-centered approach. We are joined by Dr. Zachary Winkleman. So if you were um, using patient-centered approach to treat your athletes' injuries, um, patients, then send us a, a message on Twitter. So Dr. Winkleman shared his on there, and it's you can just search Zachary Winkleman. I'm pretty sure that's pretty unique, but you <laughs> should be able to find him um, on Twitter there. So tweet that to him or to me, and then we'll see if we can, you know, if follow those up or answer any more questions. And once this episode is released on podcast not the Facebook Live or the YouTube Live, but once it's released on podcast, it will be eligible for CEUs. And right now the conversation is about 90 minutes, so it should be eligible for 90 or 1.5 CEU credits once it's released on the podcast audio version. And you'll have to go in and log into the sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash CEU. But um, again, this one is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash patient-centered approach, and I'll put a link to all that stuff there. So, Dr. Winkleman, other than your email or Twitter, anything else you want people to get a hold of you? No, I prefer if you want to just follow me on Twitter. I, uh, I respond quick on there. So please connect with me, even if it's if you don't even have a question, just follow along. I try to post some resources and stuff on there all the time. So um, follow along. Very good. Ray, anything about connecting with you? Uh, you can catch me on Twitter. It's at Ray Olivo 20. It's R-A-Y-O-L-I-V-O number 20. Uh, and I try to I post a lot of stuff about the village school where I work at right now. So <laughs> it's going to be very much village school centered. <laughs> All right. So you can connect with Ray there on Twitter and then obviously sportsmedicinebroadcast.com. You, there's tons of ways to find out about me, but this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash patient centered approach. And that'll have links to everything we've talked about. The, it'll have the slideshow, a link to the course uh, and how you can get CU credit for the podcast version of this. So for Jeremy, Dr. Zachary Winkleman, Ray Levo, Sophia Mata, and the Sports Medicine Broadcast, that is a wrap.